Okay, we're back with part two of our band book discussion for Mouse. And I'm going to wait here just a second while we get um, Dave to join us again in the room. Let's see. Um, working on that. Okay, so... Um, Okay, so we're back, and I believe we've got everything all set up for our second part of our discussion for our band book discussion on Mouse by Art Spiegelman. So I'm showing, Dave, that you're there. You just need to unmute, and we okay. can get started. There you go. Fantastic. We're getting really good at this, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what I thought was the most dramatic aspect of the whole book, which is... Um, the center portion of the book has this sort of like, uh, I don't know, it's sort of an interruption with another graphic novel that Spiegelman did when he was going through a much rougher time. Is that, isn't, how would you describe it, Dave? Um, I think that is, you're talking about Hell Planet, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was when he was going through a tough time, and particularly, at least I got out of it, that that was during the time or related to his mom's suicide. Right. So it's this comic book strip where he's talking about how it seems like he's just kind of been out of a sanitarium because he's got mental health issues. And his he's talking about his experience, and he's got himself in striped pajamas like he's a prisoner, which I thought was incredibly interesting given, you know, what Jews had to wear when they were in concentration camps. You know, if that was a, a definite choice to put them in that kind of thing, if he was, you know, why he was, I know he was saying he was a prisoner um, and he was making that allegory, but the fact that he, you know, he was wearing striped pajamas was really interesting to me. I, I definitely thought that. I thought that there was a huge tie-in between like his own internal suffering over his mother's suicide and then right. tying it in with his father. And one of the things I thought was really interesting of that is I think it was his um, father's new wife that they were like, Oh no, he found it. He found the comic. And then right. they were, and they knew that it was going to upset him so much because it was very dark and disturbing about art's own, you know, internal turmoil. And there's actually another part in the um, book where he's talking to a therapist so you know that like through his art, he's expressing a lot of his own inner turmoil that he's dealing with his father that he's actually seeing a therapist about also. Right. And throughout the whole book, he's trying to find these diaries of his mother's where she's written out her experience, the ones that she wrote when they were actually, um, you know, in camps and they were actually still trying to survive. Those had been destroyed, but she had rewritten out 
her experiences. And there were diaries that, you know, Spiegelman's dad alludes to. And so throughout the whole book, Spiegelman's trying to find these diaries because he's desperate to connect with his mom's perspective and her point of view and to get the factual basis for what she went through for the story. And I think it's more for his I don't know, for for his emotional, personal connection versus a story, because he's kind of got the story. And it seems like Spiegelman experiences a lot of the same mental health issues that his mom did. It's like he's looking for that connection and he can't find it and he can't find it. And he comes to find out that his dad has destroyed them all, like all of the diaries. Right. But before he but he tells his son, he tells Spiegelman, I destroyed them all. It hurt me too much. But the only thing I remember it said was, these are for my son. So it's like this last dagger he drives in, you know, to Spiegelman, like, here, I'm going to twist this a little. What did you think about that? It's interesting that you say that because I remember, um, you know, you just mentioned that you think that he really didn't need it because he had the story. And and yet there's a part where Spiegelman says, I need this. I need this for the story. And it's interesting because, you know, you're probably seeing through to what's really happening that he doesn't need him. He says that he needs them and he's convinced that he needs them for the story because um, of his own emotional need just to get those, um, you know, those diaries. And one thing that I thought was interesting, and this will be a spoiler alert on a 20 year old book, but um, (laughs) the the first book um, ends with Art being so frustrated that he can't get these diaries that he walks out and he calls his father a murderer. Yes. And to me, that was that was fascinating because I yes. like I flipped the page and I saw all these mice in Auschwitz in the concentration camp clothes, and I'm like, really? That's the murderer? Like his dad is a murderer? Like right. know, his dad had friends and family that were murdered, and it was I thought right. that was fascinating that he did that. Well, in the Hell Planet, he calls his mother the murderer. So at the end of that comic. He's talking about how his mother's died and what it does to him and how his he has to console his dad and how his dad is not there for them, for him. And he's all by himself. And at the end, he says, you know, basically, he's like, you gave me these problems, mom, which I'm assuming refers to his mental instability. And then he says, you've murdered me and you've left right. me nothing. And at the same time, his dad is obsessed about how there was no note. She left no note. She left right. no note. So it's like the dad is going on and on about she left no note and the son is going on and on about, well, I can't get her diaries. I can't get her diaries. And I think that both men are equating, you know, these notes, these messages to some feeling of her that it seems like throughout the retelling of their stories and and their feelings about her that they never really got a real impression of. You know, I don't feel like I get a real sense of who she was through her husband, even though it seems like he loved her dearly. He adored her. He missed her. You know, he he was really in love with her. But I, I don't feel like I get a sense of who this woman really was, whereas I get a sense of who Spiegelman's dad is big time. You know, his personality comes out instantly. And, and Spiegelman's personality himself comes out instantly. But the mom does not. Yet Spiegelman calls both his mother and his father murderers. You know, I was I was thinking about that, too, how he ends the first book with that by calling his dad a murderer. And it's not I, I it's not lost on him what he's saying. It can't be, you know, right. that he's just been talking about genocide. And he's like now calling this man, you know, a, a metaphor or not metaphorical, but he's you know, he's not literally calling him a murderer. So he's facetiously calling him one. But it's but he knows what he's doing. And part of me wondered if that harkens back to the part where he's saying, I'm worried that I'm painting my dad out to be a stereotypical Jew. 
I mm. felt like a little bit of that, of that strong ending was done to sort of jar the reader and, and make them realize there was another side to Spiegelman's dad. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I just think the whole issue with the mother was that both, they both wanted closure and yeah. neither one of them had any closure. There was no suicide note. There were no diaries. And so like they felt really distant from her. And the, the whole idea of suicide is so prevalent in that book and with art, because he also had that brother who was left right. with an aunt who she killed. She committed suicide and killed him. Right. And, you know, he's got to have a huge sense of guilt. As you know, this is my little brother. My little brother didn't even make it, you know, through this horrible experience. You know, he was murdered by an aunt who committed suicide. Well, wouldn't you know, it have and been his, his mother older brother? Suicide. It would have been his I'm older sorry. brother. Right? His older brother. I'm sorry. Right, right, right. So, yeah, let's go back to that because um, there, you know, when I, I'd forgotten what had happened to him, but they had the, the Spiegelmans had a child before they had art and he didn't survive. And the reason he didn't survive was he had gone to live with an aunt for safety. And when the Nazis came, the aunt poisoned herself and poisoned the three kids that she was taking care of. Right. Which I thought about that for a while. I thought about, you know, faced with faced with having three little ones and knowing what's coming you know, what was that? What kind of decision was that? Was that really a crazy decision? Was it not? You know, it was pretty much an assured thing. They were going to work camps and people weren't making it out of there. So that was interesting in itself. And then the fact that Art Spiegelman's mother takes her own life after knowing her eldest child was essentially murdered by poison, which is a kind of suicide type of thing, although he didn't choose. It, it was so crazy. It was like that made my head spin a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And it makes me realize why he needed to talk to a therapist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, lots of issues there. <laughs> um, the other thing that I think is really interesting is the dynamic between Spiegelman's dad and his new wife, whose name I am not recalling off the top of my head. It starts with an M. Anyway. It's like Mala or Mata. Yeah, it's Mala or something. So throughout the book, we're given glimpses into his dad's relationship with this woman that he's married after um, Spiegelman's mom kills herself. And both of these people are miserable. They're miserable with each other. And, and, and I'm sitting here wondering, you know, why did they choose this? Why did they choose to get married? I think this woman was a friend of the couple. And then you know, she just sort of stayed and married him. And Spiegelman talks on and on about how all this woman wants is money. And the woman talks about how cheap the man is. And all I could think about is you spend most of your young adult life trying to escape the Nazis and trying to escape prison camps and ghettos to create one for yourself in Queens later mm -hmm. on with this woman that you can't stand and who's miserable with you. And it's almost like Spiegelman's dad can't live in a world where he's content. It's like he doesn't understand that. And he doesn't know it. He's recreated this sort of hell on earth with his freedom. Right. And one thing I thought was interesting about his new wife that they mentioned was that she was a survivor of the camps. So you would think that if anyone would understand, um, you know, what he went through and be sympathetic to him and the hoarding and all the issues that he had, you know, you would think it would be somebody who went through the same experience and they just fought like cats and dogs. They were miserable. 
And I know like at the very end when Art's father is sick, um, you know, his his new wife comes back and she's like, OK, I got back together with him again. And you just got right. the feeling that it wasn't out of, you know, a deep abiding love. It was kind of like, well, he's dying and I got, you know, I'm going to go back to him like like almost compulsory. Or was it out of what Spiegelman was saying that her only interest was the will? Remember how he was obsessed? You know, she only wants my money. She wants me to revise my will over and over and over. So there's sort of an argument to be made that maybe there was something to Spiegelman's paranoia that maybe she was just in it for the will. You know, I I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it's never clear. It's either side is never clear. Like you never feel like you have a side of either of theirs that you're like, okay, yeah, I'm on her side. Yeah. I'm on his side. You know, it's always this back and forth. Nothing is clear with that for sure. Um, okay. I just lost my train of thought. (laughs) I'll I'll chime in until you get it. I was, I was fascinated with the women in the story because there were so many love interests. And if you remember, he chose, I think Anja was art's mother, um, that his father chose her over another woman. Yes. And I, I kind of asked myself, like, you know, why did he choose her? Like, what was so special about her? And really, like, the best answer I could get was that she was wealthy, that she had some, you know, her family was wealthy. And you, I never really got convinced that it was because he was in love with her or they had, like, this, you know, strong romantic relationship. Um, and then you have the new wife, and there's not, like, a strong, you know, ro- romance there. I do feel like, you know, once they were in the camps, like he did love her and he was trying to find her and he would do things where he could go over her camp and try to help her. But it's just it was just fascinating, like the different, you know, there's at least three different women in this story. One of them who was, you know, uh, not chosen, one of them who was chosen and then, you know, ended up committing suicide. And then the other one who was in a loveless relationship and, you know, uh, stuck it out. Right. Until I survived the Holocaust, survived the Holocaust just to have to live with Spiegelman. That's not much of a price. Well, yeah. Okay. So the first relationship he has, it it catches Art off guard when he's telling him. He's like, Dad, wait, this isn't mom. And he's like, no, I have to go back further. I have to tell you about the first woman. And that whole relationship. Did you ever see the movie The Apartment with Shirley MacLaine? Um, Yeah, I did see that a long time ago. Okay, it made me think of that the whole time. Like this woman who just sort of came and stayed and was a bit unstable and just, you know what I mean? So I thought that was interesting. And I wondered if, it was interesting to me too how he painted her as so unstable. But, But Spiegelman's mom, who actually had a lot of mental health issues, he never seemed to paint her as mentally unstable. He would just write it off and say, oh, she's anxious. Oh, she's this. Oh, she's that. Like he, right. he never really saw those things about her. And I think, you know, that's an interesting thing you were saying about, well, did he marry Anja for because her father was wealthy or not? I mean, I, rem- I, I thought the story when they met was very romantic. I actually thought he loved her very much because remember the first woman whose name I can't remember, poor thing. She just got written out of the whole thing, but um, she was she was making me. she was making fun of Anja's picture. Remember, which Spiegelman's dad had framed, right? Yeah, and she was sort of yeah, she was sort of saying, "Oh, look, she's not a tr- she's not cute, she's not a looker," and she was trying to like put her down that way. And Spiegelman's dad, I think, sort of felt like he had to defend that, and he he said that he really liked who she was and. 
He liked the things they could talk about. And he liked, you know, the more they got to talk, she was just such a smart, educated person who spoke all of these languages and people just really liked her. And it seemed to me like, I don't know, like he really fell in love with who she was and was really proud of her in that sense. But, you know, maybe, maybe there was a factor that her father was rich. I always felt like it was a secondary thing versus a primary, but, but when we read further and we see how obsessed Spiegelman's dad was with money, it makes you wonder, like, was this always in the back of his mind? Was it not? You know, that's kind of what I was thinking. And that's what's so great about this book. Nothing is ever crystal clear. Like I could go no. back and forth with these arguments for days. And then, yeah, you get to the final, the final woman who, whose motivations we never really know and whose um, motivations with Spielman's dad, we never really know. We don't know why these two are together, except that they've lived in dysfunction for so long. It's the only thing they're really comfortable in. So they just keep doing it. I sort of wonder like, what were the attributes that Spiegelman's mom fell in love with, with his dad? Like his dad was very good at bragging about himself. (laughs) So, you know, were those the same things that, that she saw? What did she see in him? Did he really love her? I think I just sort of assumed he must've really adored her and been devoted to her and loved Mm. her so much. And that's what it was. But that connection was sort of lost too which again would have been really good to have those diaries from his mom. I don't know. Exactly. Okay. So now why don't you bring up a few things? That sure. You, okay. Um, well, one thing that really stood out to me was something that I remember a college professor told me once and it was, he said that, and I'm not saying this is an absolute rule, but this was a pretty good guiding principle. He said that all good tragedies have a moment when the tragedy could have been averted. In other words, you could have left, you could have gotten out. And to me, the the tragedy in this where it could have been averted was the decision they made to go to Hungary. And there's a, a part in the book, if you've read it, where they know someone who's living in a cellar and it's got like a false bottom. And they said, yeah, it's cold, but the trash keeps us there warm at night. And, you know, it's, they have a picture of it and it looks miserable, like he's living right. just in this horrible place and it's cramped. And there's, you know, I think they even say it's like three you know, feet by six feet or, you know, they give the dimensions and it's very small. And there's, you know, a, a whole family there. And one of the things that stood out to me is it said that they lived through the whole Holocaust and, and the Nazis in that place. Like, in other words, they survived. They didn't go to the camps. Right. But but Spiegelman and his family didn't want to do that. His wife didn't want to go to Hungary, but they had a someone else who had gone there who said, oh, don't worry, because I got a note from my son or a letter that said, everything's fine. I'm really happy in Hungary. And it was a trick. Right. So the son had actually gone to a concentration camp and he was forced to write this letter back to entrap further people to go. God, you know, how much time did the Nazis have on their hands? Serious. I know, right? <laughs> right. Like that, the the level of demonic, just the things that they thought to do. I, I'm a good strategist, and I would never even think of that. That's sorry. That was just an interjection. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's a great interjection. And you know, the the Nazis were able to find that visceral level because yeah. if you have a family member that you love and you feel like that family member is safe. And yeah. that they avoided the danger that you're terrified of, 
you want to go be with that family member. And they knew that they could lure these people out. And to me, that was the defining moment. Like if he had made a different choice, if he said, we're not going to Hungary, you know, and they were lured by the freedom, like they were told that Jews could walk around and be free and they didn't have, you know, they had much more freedom and basically, you know, they were tricked into it. But had they made that other choice, they would have probably had a miserable time. But the the other uh, family that did it, they didn't up, end up going to any of the camps. Right. It was like they they decided that, you know, they weren't beneath like living in the garbage, which is something the yeah. Spiegelmans were. It's like it's almost like their status kept them from making the better decisions in the whole thing. Yeah. And they didn't have the resources that the Spiegelmans had. So they thought, you know, maybe they have to just stay where they're at, you know, in these horrible circumstances. Right. But it turns out that, you know, that didn't help the Spiegelmans either. I mean, it gave them a little better quality of life in Auschwitz. Right. But it didn't it didn't keep him from being put into a concentration camp. Right. Exactly. That was interesting to me, too, how when they were describing this, this awful place that that these people he knew had to live and Spiegelman was like went back to try to get them into a better place, you know, tried to basically get them into the place the Spiegelmans had been staying because they were going to go to Hungary. Um they were like, no, 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 you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna stay here. It's, it's fine here. And the detail to which Spiegelman's dad, like, went on and on and on about how horrific the garbage was. I mean, there were other things that were told in the story that were a million more, million, that were so much more horrific than that concept. Like, in the beginning, right. when he talks about how the Nazis, like, the little toddlers that weren't listening, so he'd grab them by the legs and smash them against the wall. Mm -hmm. That was pretty horrific to me. I mean, there was a, a graphic drawing of it, but that was pretty horrific, you know. Right. And and Spiegelman was recounting that he saw that. So it's almost like this condition that these people were forced to live in was worse than the death itself. Right. Which I think is interesting. Um, anything else you want to bring up? <laughs> Well, one of the things, and this is more about banned books than it is just this particular book and the details, but one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the particulars here with the Tennessee board, um, you know, the school board banned this, I think, in uh, January of 2022. And two or three weeks before they did that, this book and these graphic novels weren't even in the top 1,000 of Amazon. And you can predict that as soon as it was banned, it became number one. And right. to me, that, that's one of the fascinating things about banned books is, you know, if you ban a book, people want to read it. And, you know, like in the 60s, if you ever watch the show Mad Men, like they're all sneaking around copies of Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence right. because it was because it, it was banned and people will read it. Right. And it's just it's it's amazing that, you know, the people like the school board, they think that they're going to actually stop people from reading it by banning it. And it just makes it immensely popular. Yeah, shoot. That's why everybody in junior high was reading Flowers in the Attic. I mean, sure. it was way too adult for <laughs> for where we were, but it was passed around. Like one person had a copy and it was all worn and uh, crazy. But um, I just lost my train of thought again. Go ahead. Oh, Keep going. No, no that's okay. I, I would just say, you know, that that's one thing that, you know, you just can't keep the truth down. I mean, if there is something like that where, you know, there's a, you know, this is an honest account and, and granted it's through the imagery of mice and cats. Um, but, um, you know, 
this is something where like he researched this. I mean, this is true. This isn't just something like some propaganda. Like this is the real story of what happened to his father. And, you know, you can try to ban that in a school board, but eventually, you know, people are going to want to read that. And I, I thought it was interesting because you were talking about the different animals in the book, like the cats and the mice. And, you know, I, I think um, there were pigs that the poles were, but yeah. I don't know if you remember the fortune teller. No. So there was actually a fortune teller and I couldn't figure out what she was. I thought she was like a butterfly or something like that. She was like one of the rare ones. And she basically was just um, uh, saying good things. And I can't remember if it was Art's father or his mother, but basically saying, you know, like you will be, you know, things will be better. And um, I think it was his mother. And they were saying, you're, you know, your husband's not dead. He's coming for you. Um, well, and he had an, for you. Didn't he have an earlier dream, too, when they initially got taken from his grandfather that they were going to be yeah. set free on a certain day? Yeah. So it's like all of these prophecy things. Yeah, which I thought was fascinating because I don't know if you remember, but there's a scene in there where someone is looking at the number on his arm that, okay. that was tattooed into his arm. And they were saying, look, these are lucky numbers. 17 right. means this and this means freedom. And basically, this person told his fortune from reading his arm and came to the conclusion that he would survive the Holocaust. Interesting. Yeah, It's so almost it's like, I mean, an argument can be made that when you're in such desperate circumstances, you'll look for any kind of hope or reassurance. Right. But then I'm I'm also not gonna, you know, eschew anyone and their prophecy because, you know, God bless, whatever you want to do. Um right. the other thing I think is interesting too is of all the banned books that are sort of making this um major list, so many of them are so relevant to what we're experiencing right now and and the different government struggles you know like 1984 there are just so many themes that are so relevant and what these people who are trying to get these banned books are relying on for why they're being banned are it's just so it's it's a joke i mean your example of okay they were saying that the suicide of the mother is too graphic but they're overlooking the entire genocide. You know, are these people overlooking the reality of it or are they fully aware of what it is? And they right. think that these books are going to mobilize people into action. Are they even that cognizant or is it out of ignorance? What do you think? Well, I just think there's such a hypocrisy there because they're saying, well, we don't like the violence, but then they'll take their kid to, you know, go see Dirty Harry or they'll go play a video game where there's all kinds of blood and guts. And I, it makes me think that the issue really isn't the violence. Right. It's not that they're so worried about the violence. The issue is, you know, the whole racial issues and the issues with the Nazis. And, um, you know, I, it just seems to me that that's more of where they're banning it. Because otherwise, if they were that concerned about violence, why wouldn't they do all kinds of things to protect kids from, you know, different video games and movies. And I'm not speaking out against them. I'm just saying to me, it's hypocritical to say, well, we don't want you to read this book about violence, but you know, you can do these other things that have violence in them. Absolutely. Well, exactly. And, and if you just look at mainstream movies and the themes, like I think we were having a discussion about how in the eighties, there were so many themes of misogyny and sexism and, and rape and all of those things. And I mean, it's still just as bad. Don't get me wrong. You can't get through season one of game of Thrones without like just tearing your hair out. But, right. um, but it, it's sort of like it, it, 
I don't know. I feel like the band book culture stems from a movement in the eighties, like a whole movement in the eighties to just sort of pull everything. And the fact that it didn't work then, like nobody's figured that out. I don't know. It almost seems like it's just a movement to oppress people for oppression's sake, but right. in the name of freedom, you know? Right. And I just think it goes to the heart of like people where they're like, well, we want to talk of th- about things like Nazis, but we don't want to talk about the really painful, horrible stuff. You know, just just like the um, Art Spiegelman said, you know, they want you to teach a nicer version of of the Holocaust or, you know, um, all these people that are getting upset about teaching things that happened in American history. Well, you know, we can teach slavery, but we you know, don't want to talk about the parts that are painful. And like, you know, that's it is what it is. And you either teach the truth or you don't teach the truth. Right. Agreed. Well, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I don't know how you feel about it, if you feel like you've learned some stuff or if it's been informative. I hope that people who listen um, are going to like it and they're going to, you know, read along and they're going to feel some camaraderie in the whole experience. Um, So I'll be picking another banned book. Um, Maybe I'll ask for Dave's help. What do you think, Dave? <laughs> um, do you want me to pick it now or do I get to think about it? <laughs> da, 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 da. What is it, Dave? I'm going to put you on the spot. No, I'm just kidding. No, pre- no pressure. <laughs> no, I think we need to pick something for next time that's possibly a little lighter. Although it feels like all of the themes in these are so heavy, that's going to be near to impossible, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's different levels of heaviness. Right. Exactly. There's, that's there's that heaviness and then Harry Potter heaviness and nineteen eighty four. Can you really go past the Holocaust with regard to heaviness? Not easily, right? So, (laughs) oh, let's ban Harry Potter because it's about magic. Right, exactly. So, I think what we'll do is we'll announce the banned book soon that we're going to pick the next one on the Shiro newsletter, which I write. And you can head over to shiro.substack.com, which you should already be familiar with anyway, because I write a great informative newsletter. And I'll announce the book we pick there. And then, you know, maybe we'll give people a few weeks and then we'll have another one of these discussions. What do you think? That sounds great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. And anything else that you want to say to summarize our discussion at all? Anything we left out? I mean, I would just encourage people to read this because this is something that to me is very interesting that it was written so long ago, like, you know, from 81 to 91 or or whatever the time period was. And really, it just I didn't even know about this until recently. And it's such a a moving, um, just poignant um, portrayal. Uh, and not just only of the Holocaust and what was happening prior to the Holocaust, but also the family dynamics. You know, anyone who's ever had an estranged relative or, you know, someone that you've had trouble with, you know, like maybe you don't get along with your father, um, you can really relate to this. And right. I just I just thought it was fantastic because it wasn't just a straight tale of, OK, the Holocaust. It was like, we're going to talk about the Holocaust, but then we're going to talk about all these other issues. Right. Absolutely. And it's it's a graphic novel. So the fact that we're reading a graphic novel um, for the first time and we're tackling the issue of the Holocaust with a graphic novel, it's a really interesting way. I mean, anybody out there who's read a comic book 
it, they're great. But this is a really interesting theme and story to sort of read in this capacity with a graphic novel. So thanks again to Dave. Um, and thanks for everybody for listening. I'm going to post this to my Shiro newsletter as well so that you can listen to it after the fact. And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you consider joining our band book club because reading is always as important. But reading these books specifically right now is essential. So please do it. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.